I have the absolute privilege of uh, speaking to you today about the resurrection of Jesus. And so uh, we're going to spend the next 30, 35 minutes uh, looking at the resurrection of Jesus. And you may say to me, why do we do this? Well, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most significant truth of the Christian faith. When we think about today, and it's a a commemoratory of Jesus' death, burial and resurrection, this is the most significant truth. The Bible tells us, which, uh, you know, here in this place at Canterbury Gardens, we affirm the Bible as God's word, as God's truth. It's infallible. And uh, we uphold it highly. So it's our source document for all truth. And uh, in the Bible we read uh, through the Apostle Paul these words about the resurrection. And these are really significant. And he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now I'm going to be using quite a number of Bible verse references today. If you don't have a Bible, we have some over here. You can help yourself to to those. Uh, And uh, we'll get close to someone next to you who has a Bible. And, and read the words that we have, or slide on your phone. In 1 Corinthians 15, we, we see this, uh, verse 14. And I'm reading from the, the New Living Translation for these verses because I think they really tell a picture. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless. And your faith is useless. And then Paul goes on and says, well, even as apostles, as disciples and followers of Jesus, he says this, and and we apostles would all be lying about God. For we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there is no resurrection of the dead. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless. And you're still guilty of all your sin. So that is part of the significance of the resurrection. Without the resurrection, we don't have a faith. We don't have a message. We don't have good news. In fact, without the resurrection, Paul states, I'm just a phony. It would apply to me here today as well. I'd be just a phony. If there was no resurrection, then what I'd be saying is completely untrue. But there is a resurrection. And that's what we want to talk about today. Of the four major world religions, only followers of Jesus Christ claim that its founder is still alive. In Judaism... Father Abraham is the founder of Judaism. And the Old Testament states that Abraham is dead and was buried by his sons Isaac and Ishmael. You can read that in Genesis chapter 25. In Buddhism, and the founder of the Buddhism is is Buddha himself. And this is a quote I came across during the week about Buddha. Very significant. When Buddha died, it was with the utter passing away in which nothing remains behind. 
Isn't that an eloquent way of saying he's dead? When Buddha died, it was with the utter passing away in which nothing remains behind. No follower of Buddha can declare, I've seen the founder. He's been raised from the dead. I've spoken with him. He has appeared. Why? Because he is dead. Buddha is still dead. If you go to another major world religion like Islam, it's founded on Muhammad and his teachings. The German has written, there's no trace of this founder having existed after his death or appearing to his disciples. Muhammad was born at about uh, 571 AD and he died in 632 AD at the age of 61 at Medina where his tomb is annually visited by thousands of devout Muslims. Not one follower of Islam could declare with proof that he has seen the founder risen. Why? Because Muhammad is dead and he's still dead. So unlike those three major world religions of Judaism, of uh, Buddhism and of Islam, we claim that Jesus Christ is alive. That the tomb is empty. That he is risen. And that gives us faith and hope. Michael Green in his book, uh, which he's titled Man Alive, and what do you think that book is about? Jesus rising from the dead. In his, his book he states this, without faith in the resurrection there would be no Christianity at all. He's just restating what Paul told us. The Christian church would never have begun. The Jesus movement would have fizzled like a damp squid with his execution. You see, Christianity stands or falls with the truth of the resurrection. If you can disprove the resurrection, then you dispossess Christianity of its faith. Now this morning, I don't, I don't know all of you who are here today. I know most of you. And if you're visiting today, I'm absolutely just uh, stoked that you're here. It's great to have you here. I'm glad you're with us on this day. There's one thing I want to ask you. As you contemplate the story of Easter, this is why we're here. We've gone through an Easter week, right? Last week we started with Palm Sunday. On Friday we looked at the cross. Today we're looking at the resurrection. As we contemplate Easter, I want you to consider the following. If you were asked to describe Easter without using any words, uh, you could only use punctuation marks. How would you describe it? How would you describe this Easter in 2015 for you if you could only use punctuation marks? Maybe this Easter is just one giant comma for you. Maybe it makes you stop, pause, think, and listen. But that's about it. You just continue on with life. 
as though it's just part of a movement of life. It's just a comma. You're just pausing your thinking. Not convicted. Nice thing to do. Good chance to get together with the family. Good chance to indulge in chocolate. Good chance to watch footy on the telly. It's just a pause. It's really not that significant. Or maybe you describe Easter by using the punctuation mark of a full stop. Now, you've heard the message before, a thousand times before. To you, it's just an empty ritual. You know, after all, what does a man who died 2,000 years ago really have to do with me today? You may feel as so you're not on the inside, but on the outside, an onlooker. And that's all you'll ever be. It's just a story and you, you, you don't know if you believe it or not. You think perhaps by keeping the ritual in some way that, that uh, creates an environment of pleasing towards God, being accepted. So you put that full stop in there and say, okay, well, that's what it is. But for some of us, uh, Easter could be described with an exclamation mark. So why would it be described as an exclamation mark or an exclamation point? Because it's a deep time of gratitude and praise for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And for his salvation that his victory over death has brought us. And that's what I trust and pray as we talk about the resurrection today. That you may move from a, a comma experience, move from a full stop experience to an exclamation mark and you see for the first time in your life that this message of Christ and his resurrection is real. And it is a purpose in it to free you from your sin and to have a relationship with the Lord of glory. And that's the heart of this message today. Last week we started in the book of Matthew and we looked at the triumphant entry. And there were things I asked last week which uh, I think are pertinent today. We saw that, for those of you who don't know, Matthew was an eyewitness of Jesus and his three years here on earth. And he gave us an account, a written account of what went on. And in his book, in his letter, in this gospel of Matthew, we see that in the middle of it, about a week before Passover and the crucifixion, the question was asked by Jesus to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And Peter said and responded, well, some say a teacher, some say a rabbi. And then Jesus turns to Peter and says, but who do you say that I am? And he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You read that in Matthew 16. And immediately from that point in time when that confession was made, we see Jesus turn his face towards Jerusalem. He predicted his death, his burial, and his resurrection on three occasions. And he comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, signifying that he was a king, not a king in royal regalia, not a king that he was coming to uh, conquer militarily, but a king who was humble and mounted on a donkey. 
And the question was asked in that scene as he moved into Jerusalem, as this great stirring and emotion was stirred up in the city as, as this prophet. They'd been wandering the countryside for three years and, and creating a, a great throng of people following him. This prophet who was claiming to be the Son of God, the Messiah. As he entered Jerusalem, this wonderful stirring occurred, this commotion, this, this heavy scene. And a question was asked. And the question was, who is this? The crowd, the people was asking, who is this Jesus? And a little bit further on, as we, we saw on Friday, That same crowd, as the chief priests and the Pharisees, the religious rulers of the day, took Jesus to the Roman governor and said, we want him dead, we want him killed, he blasphemes, he's saying he is God and he is not. We want you to crucify him. And Pilate could find no wrong with this man. And he said, which of the two do you want me to release? This is Matthew chapter 27, verse 21. The governor said to them, this is to the chief priests and the elders and the crowd, which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, what, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So in one moment they're saying, who is this? And the next moment they're crying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And then as we looked at the death of Jesus, the question is still asked, well, who is this? In Matthew chapter 27, Verse 51 and down is kind of significant in the answer. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. This is the death of Jesus. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus... So we have this scene at the foot of the cross. We have soldiers who are administering the crucifixion. They were there. They were watching. And they were asking the same questions as the crowd. Well, who is this? We've nailed a sign on top of the cross and it says, Jesus, the King of the Jews. Really? But the response here, according to Matthew, was amazing. So watching over Jesus, they saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this is the Son of God. Isn't that ironic? Completely ironic. The nation rejected their Messiah. A Gentile centurion said, truly this was the Son of God. He knew the question and he answered it because he saw who Jesus was. He was the sin bearer. 
Let's read. Let's grab uh, Matthew chapter 27. We'll read from verse 57 through to the end of the chapter. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his new own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were, with, were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how the imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. As stated earlier, the resurrection is the key to the Christian faith. The Pharisees knew this. They knew that his whole basis of his preaching through the through the time that he was walking on earth, he says, I'm going to die, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to be mocked, but I will rise again. So the Pharisees concocted a plan. We just don't want this to happen. And we think the only way he's going to rise again and, and maybe it's going, going to be a whole lot of fraud. Someone's going to come and steal the body and say, look, he's risen. So we don't want that to happen. And uh, so they go to Pilate. They say, we want a guard. Just a few men to sit outside the tomb so we can make sure that uh, he will not be stolen. Not only were they uneasy about a one and a half to two ton stone in front of the tomb being rolled away. They were uneasy because Jesus had consistently said, I will rise again on the third day. So they placed this Roman guard there. Look, a normal temple guard was around 270 men. It's unlikely that... Um, at this request, Pilate would have sent them 270 men. If a guard was predominantly Roman, it would be likely consisting of 16 men, each responsible for guarding an area of around, uh, I don't know, two metres by two metres. And the important thing to remember that if uh, you failed in your duty, you'd lose your head. And you wouldn't lose your head, actually. You'd be burned to death. That was the punishment for any sort of Roman soldier or Roman guard. If they failed to, to honour their obligations, they would be burnt. Not only did they um, place the Roman guard there at the tomb, they uh, put a seal around the tomb, a Roman seal. And this consisted of a cord and sealing wax. It was authorised by Pilate to authenticate 
that this tomb actually was sealed and no one could get in there. And once again, the penalty for trying to break the seal, for an unauthorized breaking of the seal, was death. So this is man's attempt at trying to stifle the resurrection. Because we know the resurrection is so important to our faith. In Romans chapter 4, it says this, Romans 4.25, He was delivered over to death for our sins. Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins. And he was raised to life for our justification. Those are big words. The resurrection ensures that we can be justified before God if we put faith in the fact that Jesus rose from the dead for our sin. In 1 Corinthians, we'll read that the resurrection is the basis for our faith and forgiveness. We've read that already. If Christ has not been raised, then our faith is useless. You're still in your sin. At the start of 1 Corinthians 15, we read these words. And this is Paul speaking again. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. So this is not an unusual thing because the Old Testament had talked about the fact that a Messiah had to come to suffer and to die for sin. Isaiah 53 talks about that and other portions. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So the resurrection is central to this message of faith. And the resurrection is also the basis for believing that we will be raised. And we'll talk about that just a little bit more. But you see, even at the time of Jesus' crucifixion, the time of his death, men were trying to discredit the resurrection. They placed a stone there, a sealed stone, guards. And not only that, they actually accused Jesus' followers of stealing him. So when you talk about the resurrection, if you want to discredit, there's several things you can do. One of them is say, hey, the body was stolen. Well, let's just think about that for a moment. Um, was the body stolen? What does the Bible teach us about that? And I just want to think through that for a, a sec. Let's read in Matthew 28, verse 11. Because the resurrection has occurred 
I'll actually start from verse 1 of chapter 28. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a giant earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that, they, that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So he departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. Doesn't that stir your soul with excitement as you read that? He is risen. But you know, this is a plan that has been foiled. And the Pharisees can't work this out. He said he would do it. And it's happened, so how can we cover it up? Well, the first thing we'll do is we'll accuse them of stealing the body. And that happens in... Uh, the next verses. Verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. This legion of guards told them, this angel has moved the stone. Jesus is gone. And I'm about to get burned alive because this has happened. And the Pharisees and the scribes, and when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. So a bit of bribery and corruption went on here. The, the uh, soldiers said, this has happened, and we're going to tell people. And the, the scribes and the Pharisees said, no, you're not. We'll part with a bit of cash. And this is what you'll tell the people. His disciples came by night and stole him away while you were asleep. And if it comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did what uh, they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. I would suggest the story has spread far further than that. Because at the heart of the Christian faith is the resurrection. And at the heart of unbelief is saying, well, he never was risen from the dead. So therefore, maybe... He did get stolen. But you know what? The evidence here in Scripture says, hey, if he did get stolen, it fails to explain, well, these men were afraid and they, they fled from Jesus in the garden. It fails to explain, as we read a little bit long, further in some of the other gospel accounts, while they were sitting in the upper room, hiding in a locked room, just makes no sense. They had no boldness to even go and do an act like this. Disciples themselves, as you read through the resurrection accounts, were skeptical. Even when Mary came and, and said to uh, them, hey, he has risen, they, they didn't believe first. John and Peter had to run to the tomb. 
The other disciples were sceptical until Jesus appeared before them. If they had stole the body, why didn't they take the grave clothes? They were lying there. All the accounts tell us the grave clothes were lying there. One of the major things is, in the end, the disciples' attitude completely changed after the resurrection. They became bold. They became heralds of the message of the resurrected Lord. They'd seen it firsthand. And they changed the world through the power of the Spirit. So they had no reason to steal the body. The Romans had no motive for this. They didn't care less. It was just another crucifixion on the calendar of many crucifixions. And even less convincing is why would the Jews want to steal the body? They didn't want to stage a resurrection. That's the last thing they'd want to do. Because you know what? If they wanted to dispute the resurrection, all the Jews needed to do was display the body. And they could not. On the day of Pentecost, 50 days later, when Peter stands up and preaches the gospel of the kingdom, all men everywhere must repent and be saved. The Jewish council and leaders, all they needed to do was to discredit them, was to present the body. The body's not there. The body's out of the tomb, it's resurrected. Hallelujah, what a saviour. So it hasn't been stolen. Other people think, well, oh, maybe Jesus really didn't die. This is something they call a swoon theory. And um, this says, well, you know, maybe, maybe after those hours of pain and torture on the cross, nails into the hand, spear into the side, maybe he actually wasn't dead. And maybe when he was lying in the tomb, he actually resuscitated in some way. And maybe with all this agony and physical pain and death, he managed to roll the stone back himself. That's not very credible, is it? Some call that the swoon theory. I'd call it something else, but I won't do it publicly. Because the, the incredible thing is the severity of what we read about Christ's crucifixion and the professionalism of the soldiers who did this job. Remember, they weren't novices at crucifying people. They knew how to do it. And the subsequent acts of Jesus, if he hadn't died, how could he do all this stuff in the, in the weakness of the flesh? Just couldn't. It's just a lie. It's a swoon theory. So the theft theory is a lie. The swoon theory is a lie. Another theory about the resurrection, try and explain it, is the hallucination theory. That speaks for itself, really. I don't know who's having the hallucinations. But you know, this theory goes something like this. Well, the disciples really wanted to believe he, uh, he was raised from the dead, so they hallucinated about it. But you know what? There's one wonderful passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians 15 which really discounts that. I'll just read that to you. So 1 Corinthians 15 says this. We've read part of it already. 
For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. The resurrection of Jesus was no hallucination. It wasn't a figment of their imagination. The physical body of Jesus rose by the account of all who he appeared to. Think about Thomas. I will not believe until I put my hand in his side, my hand in his fingers. Jesus appeared to Thomas and he did. The tomb was empty. Did they hallucinate about this as well? And then there's some other theories to try and deny the resurrection, and these are just even more mind-blowing than hallucination and swooning. There's the the wrong tomb theory. Well, perhaps um, the disciples really believed the tomb was empty because they went to the wrong one. It's pretty ridiculous. So therefore, that means the soldiers must have been at the wrong tomb. Joseph of Arimathea must have forgotten the location of his own tomb. Uh, The Pharisees must have forgot and couldn't find the tomb, and... The angels sat at the wrong tomb. It's pretty stupid. The tomb is empty, folks. Christ has died for our sin and he is raised from the dead. Hallelujah, what a saviour. A couple of other theories which are kind of important too is the wrong man theory. Mary and the disciples sought the wrong man. And then there's many, many other conspiracy theories. Do you know what? The Bible tells us that Jesus died by a cruel crucifixion. Why did he die? Take away the sin of the world. You may sit here and think, no, I don't need my sin to take away. I'm actually okay. Have a a think about your thought life for a moment. We're all sinners in need of God's grace. And there's no remission of sin. There's no remission of sin unless blood is shed. And Jesus, the Lamb of God, died a death. He died. And then there's the empty tomb. The stone has been removed and he has risen and he appeared to many before ascending to his father. Just in closing, I'd like to, for you to consider once again if you were to describe Easter with punctuation marks what would you describe it as? Are you just pausing and saying, really, that doesn't have any relevance to me whatsoever? Are you saying that's just religious? Or are you saying, hey, I believe Jesus is real. I believe he rose from the dead. I believe his claims. He's not a liar. He's not a lunatic, but he is Lord. 
He is the Son of God that takes away the sin of the world. And that means mine. That means yours. And that is so liberating and freeing as you think through that. Because you know what? Prior to his crucifixion, Jesus said these words in John chapter 11. Turn with with me to these. It's really significant. See, Mary and Martha had a brother. His name was Lazarus. He died. And Jesus was away from the scene, and he loved Lazarus. He loved Mary. He loved Martha. But he was some distance away at the time that Lazarus died. John eleven seventeen tells us this. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. That very fact sort of is known, that if someone has been lying in the tomb for four days, they are dead. That was a Jewish practice of the time. They'd say, okay, after three days, we are absolutely certain that the person is dead. So the this, this Gospels tell us it was four days, to put it beyond certainty. Then Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd only been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So Martha thought, yes, I know he's going to rise. There's going to be some point in time in life where the soul will be united with the body in resurrection. Because the Bible teaches us that. I know that's going to happen at some future point in time, in the last day when the world is consummated under the rule of God. And that Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And anyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. That's where the rubber hits the road, folks. Jesus claims to be the resurrection and life. In his physical body, there is an empty tomb which proves that he is the resurrection and life. And Jesus claims and says, I am the resurrection and life, and if you believe in me, you too will have eternal life with me. So where do you stand on the resurrection of Jesus? Because it's a fundamentally important question. Do you believe that he is the resurrection and life? Because if you do, you have life eternal. And then we can say, hallelujah, what a saviour. I'm just going to give you some time to pause and think through that. Where do you stand on the resurrection of Jesus? This might be the first time you've been really confronted with this truth. 
And I pray that the Spirit of God is working in your heart to say, I believe and I want to have a relationship with Jesus who takes away my sin and gives me life eternal. Don't you love Martha's response? Yes, Lord, I believe. Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God. She got it. Do you get it? Because we do not have eternal life without understanding that Jesus has died for our sin and he is resurrected. And we too are the same if we believe. We're now going to have a time of communion. And as we think about communion, we have two very simple symbols. We have juice and we have bread. And as we have juice and bread, it symbolizes the whole Easter story. I'd ask you to think about as you take communion that you do actually have a relationship with Jesus that you believe that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, that he did die for sin, that he did rise again. Because as you work through that process, that's the only way you have true communion with God. These are just symbols. These are symbols of the fact that we acknowledge that Jesus has saved us. It's a very simple feast. And we're going to share this together on this Special Easter Sunday. It's what a thing we can share. We can celebrate in the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus. He's freed us from our sin. And he deigns to live within us. So I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask, uh, we're actually going to do it a little bit differently today. We're going to have four tables set up. I'd ask you to come up and you'll be served the bread and the wine. And then you can just take a couple of moments of quiet reflection, thank the Lord, and then go back to your seats, and then we'll have a closing song.